invite you to be seated. And as you're seated, I also invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks that during this Advent season, we come anticipating so much, anticipating all the gifts on the Advent wreath that we have already lit of hope, peace, joy, and of love. And we pray that you might continue to speak to us this day and that we might hear a word from you and that meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. So I don't know about you, but sorry, I forgot to say amen. My mic was, my mic was uh, giving me problems. I'm just switching to this mic. Um, so I don't know about you, but uh, during this season, one of the things that is interesting to me is that the scripture readings seem to be somewhat different depending on which gospel you pick up. This is, this is a mantra of mine that I've had that uh, I know for many of us, you kind of hear me say over and over again, but I do not believe that the Bible is just this thing that you open up and it like is exactly the way that you read it. And the reason being is because if you open up the Bible and you read it, it tells you different things and different stories. And for some people who are like, I want to know the facts, it, like you pull your hair out and you say, well, this is so confusing, I don't understand. And for others of you, you might just say, I don't read the Bible at all. And then others of you still might find it like me, this meaningful endeavor that allows you insight into this historic and faith-filled event from different perspectives. And we've had that throughout this Advent season. We began and talked about the genealogies that were included in the Gospel of Matthew. And then we moved on to kind of gave the perspective of Mother Mary and the idea of Theotokos, of God dwelling within us. And then we talked about the perspective of Joseph last week. And today now, we go from Matthew back to Luke. And in this story, there's a little bit less of the Joseph character. Because if you remember last week, we talked about how Joseph went on and, you know, uh, heard an angel. He was about to kind of like let Mary go off quietly into the night because she was pregnant and they were out of wedlock and they just, he just couldn't do it. And so the best decision was just to say, go on your way. And then an angel showed up to him. An angel showed up and said, no, don't do that. You know, this is going to be my son. This is, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be the savior of the world. And we talked about how, what that meant for Joseph and how that kind of brought a perspective on this story. But in Luke, we don't get that. We don't get that at all. In fact, in Luke, Mary seems to be abandoned by all of her social network. This young woman, Theotokos, which is a Greek word for mother of God, Latin word, mother of God, was abandoned and left on her own. And so you can just see kind of the, the fear that she had as someone who had totally lost her social security, net, her like security net, you know, as a woman who's pregnant and not married during that time, she would have been left to fend for herself. And she does the only thing that she can think to do, which is get out of town, because in town, everyone knows kind of the rumors that have been going on and to go to the nearest family that she trusted. And it was this pivotal moment in her life that she had been told something amazing was in her future and that God had blessed her and chosen her, and yet she surely would have been filled with fear, with doubt, with anxiety, with worry about what was to happen next. 
and she leaves, and she goes on this journey. And then she finds herself knocking at the door to her cousin's house. And Elizabeth answers the door. And then the greeting she received, I believe, changed everything for Mary. The greeting that Mary received from Elizabeth was a greeting that at the threshold of the most important time of her life, of the most time most filled with fear and doubt, there was someone full of love to take her in. And not just that, but to say, you have been blessed amongst all the women of the world. You are carrying God. And it was in that moment, you can just imagine just for a moment what Mary must have been feeling like. Probably like swelled up in tears, wrapped her arms around Elizabeth, and just hugged her. Someone welcomed me home. Someone is willing to love the unlovable. And it was there in that emotion that she found herself in, these two women, that Mary's fear turns into a song of love and joy. And you might have noticed we skipped a scripture reading. You know, I said I'm skipping over some scripture and starting back in 57. If you were to go back to Luke and you were to read what had happened, it's a, a beautiful poem and a beautiful song that's known as the Magnificat, which is Mary's song. That Mary's song proclaiming her blessedness. For surely she left Nazareth where she was in fear that no one would love her in fear that she was left alone and that even her fiancé wasn't going to stay by her side, only to find a house of love. And for a moment, I just want, I just want you to think about where have you been in your life when you found yourself at that threshold? I know many of times in my life, I, I've found myself traveling on a new adventure, you know, I grew up in southern Minnesota. I was in a small town, and I decided to go to college in Los Angeles area. If you didn't know, the two are vastly different, right? Um, I didn't know as different as they were going to be, but either way, what I did, I had my mom on me with that trip because, you know, she's like, uh, all parents, like, they bring you to college and, you know, have the teary moment. But there's been a couple other times that I've made these giant transitions in my life that I didn't have my mom with me to support me and kind of carry me through, let me know that I'm loved because, you know, moms are so good at that. But either way, one of the things, one of the times was when I moved to Hawaii. I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was a pastor in downtown Chapel Hill, and we got a call as a family to go to Hawaii. Like It was an opportunity to be uh, on Oahu at Kilohana United Methodist Church, and it took me, you know, like I was like pondering whether or not to go. My wife, you know, she makes decisions, and she's like, yes, we're going. And so I had never been to Hawaii before. Anywhere, not any of the islands. I like, knew nothing about the islands. I was, you know, got a book that I was going to start reading a little bit about Captain Cook and all these other things. But I was like completely blank slate. 
And the, the crazy part is that I wasn't able to go with my family. Like, you know, when your pastors move different places, you know, you bring your families with you. But we were moving from uh, California or North Carolina to Hawaii. And in Kilohana, they decided to renovate the parsonage. Uh, parsonage is a fancy word for the house that pastors live in oftentimes, where the church will own a house and then pastors will live in that. Um, because, you know, we get paid to, you know, have a $3 million house like a lot of people have in Kailua. Um, <laughs> but either way, they renovated the parsonage. So I was told, you can't bring your family yet. But the district superintendent, who's like the kind of the, the regional director for Hawaii, above pastors, they kind of direct them, said, you got to be at this church July 1. I don't care if your family can't come, but you got to be there. They need a pastor. They want to be, they're so excited to have you. Uh, and so there I was, I had to leave my entire family in California at my in-laws house and get on a plane and go somewhere where I had never been before. And I get off the plane and I know my like staff parish relations chair is supposed to be there. Um, that's a you know, fancy word for our HR committee. Um, but the staff parish relations committee chair was there and she uh, had these, you know, this lay. She had uh, all these flowers and then she even had these other ones I'd never seen before, you know, those like candy ones, you know, as well. So she had both of these lays and so there she was and she was so excited and she, you know, put her lays on me and then she gave me a big hug and then she brought me to the Ohana house that I was staying at and it overlooked the ocean and then she's like, tomorrow one of the church members is going to take you around the island because we know that you have not been here before and sure enough, you know, actually, uh, Natalie Oda, who is a longtime church member here at Kailua United Methodist Church, her son-in-law, Mike Owens, got me in his car. And he, he drove me around the island. They introduced me to everyone. Everyone was giving me lays. Everyone was so excited to see me. And I just felt the sense of aloha that we talk about in Hawaii, the sense of welcome into this community, into this faith ohana. We're excited that you are here. And I was worried, and I was worried about my family I was leaving behind. I was worried if we had made the right decision to come out to this region of the United Methodist Church, and let alone to come out to Hawaii, you know, we had left a good situation. And I had the fear and the anxiety of what was gonna happen next. But the aloha and the welcome I received put me at ease. I'm wondering for you, when, how many times that you've had that in your life? And who were the people that you can specifically remember that are brought you the lay, or they met you at the threshold, at the airport, at the house you're going to live at, and they helped you experience aloha, love? And how did that change your time in that place? Because I guarantee if you've had the experience of not having that, you might not have the same warm feelings of home that I'm describing in my story and that of Elizabeth and Mary that they shared. Could it perhaps be an opportunity of home or it could be opportunity of loneliness and isolation in a new place? I know none of you have ever moved before especially those that are in the services. You all know, we all know these transitions in our lives. And we all have opportunities to either welcome or let those opportunities pass by. 
But here's one of the things that I've experienced about this fancy word love and about welcome. is one of the things about this story that I think brings it to an even deeper level. It's something that seems distant to each of us, but I think is so close to home at the same time. And that's to say, what seems to kind of inspire the love between these two is two things. One is they say that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit was there with Elizabeth because she was in her womb was John the Baptist, this future prophet for Jesus and this leader of the movement that would eventually kind of make its way to Jesus followers, which would eventually make its way to the Christian movement as well. And then you had Mary, Mary, who is holding the Son of God within her womb. And both of these women meet, and it's when they notice that within each other, that the love stirs within them. That Mary says, it's because of God in, or Elizabeth says, it's because of God in you. God in you. That God in me leapt and moved and stirred me. And Mary saw that it's because Elizabeth saw God in her. Not just a pregnant teenager out of wedlock. That she felt an embrace and a love that she could not have explained or anticipated. Uh, many of you know I, I like a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to get heady with you for a little bit, so just get ready. We're going to go up for a second. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer is uh, a theologian in Germany, and he ended up going to the Bronx, and that's where his uh, faith and theology was really formed. And he has this phrase. He says that love and the intimacy of love is actually the point of the greatest sin in the world. And you might be thinking to yourself, like, what in the world is he talking about? Love as sin? Well, what he's trying to get at is he's trying to say that the idea, you know, many of you grow up with a family, yeah, that, like, sees you differently than you see yourself. Yeah? Anyone? No? Just me? Just me is the most selfish person in the world, for, according to my sibling. You know, um, no. You grow up in a family where they see you differently, right? They see you differently. No matter what you do to try to change that perspective, they just remember you and your child self or whatever it is. I mean, it's this idea that we know you. We know who you are, right? And because they know who you are, it is just so hard to break free of the shackles of that sort of love. Because you can't hide what you did when you were in fifth grade to them, you know, when you like, you know, threw a remote controller at them, or you can't hide when you responded in this way. And it's not just family, right? It's also can be uh, friends that have been around you forever. But, but Bonhoeffer saw this idea as the intimacy of love as one of the greatest threats to community. And the reason being is because he had seen people do all sorts of things in the name of love that was not loving at all. Most specifically, he had seen the rise in Germany of the Third Reich, who out of love for the German Volk tradition, they gave way to some of the greatest atrocities in human history. It wasn't out of hate that they woke up in the mornings and did the things that they did. It was out of love for everything it meant to be German. And they knew what it meant to love their neighbor. They knew it. And to love their neighbor was to do the actions that they had. 
And so Bonhoeffer in his book talks about Christ needing to be the mediator of all relationships. Again, follow me. Essentially what he's saying with that is that we will always be blinded by ourselves, by our own idea of the other. And the minute that we think that we know someone so well that it can dictate our actions, it's like our family looking at us as if we can never change. Or it's as if we're clouded by what we're so certain is true in this world that we make all sorts of judgments that we think are right 100%, but they could be so, so wrong. So Bonhoeffer says, rather than knowing someone, we know Christ, who is the gift. And if we see Christ in one another, we then now see someone not as the selfish teenager who could just never grow up, right? We now see them as someone who's not German, not local, military or not military, male or female, black or white, gay or straight. We don't see them that way. We see instead what? The gift of God in them. The gift of God in them. And the minute that we start to see everyone as God's image bearers, as people that carry the divine within them, is the minute that we stop putting people at arm's length or telling people the way that they ought to act or the way that they're acting or whatever it is. But it's the minute now we open ourselves for the opportunity to receive a gift, to receive the divine in a new way. Just like I, I talked about, I love the Bible because it shows different perspectives on the story of God. Each of us carries a different perspective on the divine. I've mentioned this before, in, probably in, the, in here, but I definitely do it in preschool chapel. They've been coming to the sanctuary over the past month and a half, and I told them, look back on that wall. And you can look back on that wall. On back of that wall is a giant tapa. Each of us are a thread within that masterpiece. And if you aren't there, there is a hole that is missing and it is not complete. And if your neighbor sitting next to you is not there, it's a hole that is not complete. And if we start treating each other that as if they are a gift that belongs there, imagine the world of love we would begin to live in. And imagine when someone shows up at that doorstep, at that threshold, in that new transition and the anxiety and the fear and the doubt and do I belong? Will I fit in? You know, are they going to like me? And what's my commander going to be like? What's my boss going to be like? All the feelings that anyone has. What's my professor's going to be like at this new place? Or, you know, there's going to be community at this college. Those feelings that you carry. If someone sees you as a gift, as a bearer of God, surely you'll feel more at home 
surely you'll find a seat at the table. You'll find your people, your community. Friends, did you know that people move to Hawaii around Christmas time? <laughs> Friends, do you know that people right now in this room are in the midst of transition? Do you know that it is impossible for you to go the next two weeks without finding someone at a threshold, waiting to experience someone who will love them as if they bear the gift of God within them. So as we go throughout the next couple weeks of Christmas break as families, of the hustle and bustle to get everything ready for that magical night, the time around the table, whatever it is, slow ourselves to be Elizabeth for the Mary that's standing at the threshold, hoping and praying for love as opposed to rejection. So let us go and let us see God in one another and in all those we encounter. And as we see God, we might experience love. I invite you to pray with me. Loving God, we find ourselves in life's journey at times in our lives when we hope for the future, when we're worried about what's to come, when we've lost a loved one, when we're about to embark on an extremely difficult few months. And it's in those moments that we need to experience the love, love that you offer us in Christ. And so often that love comes through the embrace of someone else. So during this time, we pray if we find ourselves at that threshold, like Mary, worried and loss and fear, that we might find an Elizabeth who sees God in us. Or we might be Elizabeth for others. And we might find that no matter where we are in life's, in life's mountaintops or our valleys, we experience the love of, that your son, Jesus, brings. Amen.